You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week, one of the most difficult consultations a doctor can have doesn't involve an elaborate diagnosis, but instead a simple statement of intent, suicide. Later, Mabel Chu will find out how to have that conversation. It's better to get to engage them into a bit of a conversation, get in a sense of the underlying problems, and then pursue this if it appears that, that, that you could be in one of the high-risk groups. But first, plain packaging. Earlier this week, I caught up with one of our authors to discuss the evidence. Many commentators hoped that plain packaging on tobacco products would be in place by the end of this parliament. They've been disappointed as the plans have now been shelved by the coalition government as they wait for more evidence. But what evidence would be enough? Uh, to discuss, I'm joined by Professor Linda Bold, who's Professor of Health Policy at the University of Stirling, and one of the authors of an observations column that appears online on bmj.com this week. Um, Linda, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. That's okay. Now, just to back it up a little bit, could you tell us how plain packaging policy was conceived? What was the thinking behind it? Well, I suppose the background is that Plain packaging of tobacco products was initially discussed really from the 1980s. Um, And in fact, in Australia, which is the one country that's now introduced the policy, they published a report on the issue back in 1992. So it's it's been discussed for a while. And and the background to that really is that across uh, many countries, tobacco advertising and promotion, many forms of that have been banned. So in the UK, for example, we have the Tobacco Advertising and Promotion Act, which is implemented between 2002 and 2005. And it really took away almost all forms of tobacco advertising. Um, and then more recently, we've seen um, in the UK and in uh, Canada, Australia and other countries, the removal of point-of-sale displays where you mm. see cigarettes um, in supermarkets behind the counter. So really the only form of advertising that tobacco industry has left in those countries is the pack. And they've put their very substantial marketing and promotion budgets into innovative, colourful and distinctive packaging. Mm. So is there any evidence that um, having a plain pack, you know, people still be able to buy the brand that they're used to, will actually make uh, have an effect on the level of smokings overall as opposed to on, you know, particular um, brands? I think um, if you look at the evidence on packaging generally, as you say, packaging is about increasing the appeal and attractiveness of a product. And you're right, absolutely, part of the role of packaging is to differentiate between brands. But it's also just about making products more appealing full stop. And so what we see with cigarette packaging is if you do the studies that have have been conducted with children, for example, or with people who are experimenting with smoking, um, they do find those packs very appealing. And I'm not sure if you've seen any of the ones that are are on the market at the moment, but there's very distinctive packaging that's targeted at young girls and women, for example, Mm. packs that look like lipstick holders. Um, There's different colors and surface uh, textures that are used. And then, of course, there's very interesting and distinctive ways of opening the pack, flipped uh, top packs, uh, slide packs. Um, So those are really about making the product appealing overall and and making it look attractive. And we know that that is one of the reasons why young people, for example, would experiment with smoking is because they'd like to try it. So it's really about uh, targeting new smokers rather than than 
uh, already existing ones? Well, there's a range of different um, bits of evidence. I mean, if, if I move on to maybe say what we think plain packaging would achieve, and there are really um, four things, and this is something that's been described in the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, which mm. is an international public health treaty that the UK and many other countries have signed up to. The first one is if you introduce standardized packaging, it, it's going to increase the, the noticeability and the effectiveness of the health warnings that are on the packs, which, you know, those, those pictures of, of a diseased lung, for example. Ones, yeah. yeah. Um, so it increases the noticeability of those warnings. That's not rocket science, is that you've got a plain pack and they're much more prominent. The second thing is we know that it, it uh, prevents the package itself from detracting attention from those warnings. So uh, these very tiny, slim packs, it's very difficult to see the warning on some of them, for example. Mm -hmm. And then also we know that the industry uses design techniques that make smokers believe that some products are less harmful than others. Um, so, I mean, if you speak to smokers, um, and this isn't about young people, it's about existing smokers, they genuinely believe, um, many smokers from across the social spectrum, that not all cigarettes are the same, and some are less risky than others, yep. lower tar or whatever. And it's the packaging that conveys a lot of that information. It's completely misleading, because from a public health perspective, all cigarettes are equally harmful, mm -hmm. and all forms of tobacco are harmful. Um, the final thing is, there is a body of evidence that suggests that people who are currently smoking, if they are using a plain pack, they feel more uncomfortable about their smoking. They believe that the cigarettes don't taste as good, they're poorer quality, um, and they think about quitting more often, which is what we find in this Australian study that I think we may be discussing in, in a moment. Um, so those are the types of evidence that are there, um, and that's why we think you know standard pa standardized packaging, just from the from the research that we have, yeah. um, is an is an interesting um, part of trying to reduce smoking rates. Yeah. Um, so you can see the rationale behind it is good. Um, but the government's saying, you know, they want more evidence. And to be fair, the policy in Australia has only come into place relatively recently. So there won't be any good long term data. And obviously, there isn't any uh, RCT on this kind of thing. Um, so, I mean, is there anything in that that, that there, the evidence just isn't strong enough to, to support this? Well, I think there's two things to say there. The first thing is that the evidence that was presented to the UK government was a systematic review that they commissioned, uh, that we conducted, and was published alongside the public consultation on the issue uh, a couple of years ago. And we found 37 studies pointing to these types of outcomes that I've just described. And I mean, my work is, is more on smoking cessation and treatments for tobacco and nicotine dependence. It was, was not a literature that I'd looked at in depth before, and I was struck by the consistency of those studies across multiple study designs, different countries. Um, in terms of Australia, though, which is the question you're asking, you're right, it's a new policy. What we've got so far is two published studies. Yeah. The second one came out in BMJ Open uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, and the, fir well, the first one showed that if you try and buy a plain pack, it doesn't take any longer than a branded pack. They were concerned that retailers might be disadvantaged by it. So that was the first study. But the second study looked at, it was a survey of smokers, and it looked at differences between those who were using the plain packs and those who weren't and compared it with previous years. And essentially, they found that smokers who were smoking uh, from the new plain packs were more likely to think that their tobacco was lower quality in those packs, which is what we see from the studies that we, we included in our review. They tended to be less satisfied with the, the smoking cigarettes from those packs, so they enjoyed them less. Again, previous studies show that. Mm -hmm. um, and they were also more likely to think about and prioritize quitting, um, which is very interesting. And again, we saw that from the kind of experimental studies I've described, which were 
in existence um, through research before the policy was in place in Australia. From my point of view, um, if you look at any area of research, if you've got a body of evidence consistent across multiple, as I say, study designs, and then you've also got a, a real life experiment that's happening at the moment in a particular country where we're seeing those same kinds of things emerging in the very early stages. From a research perspective, um, I think that gives you a good, certainly a good body of evidence to, on which to take action. Now, in Australia, there were howls of protests by um, the tobacco industry about this. You know, they fought it tooth and nail. Obviously, they're protecting profits, um, but they also say that this might increase things like, uh, you know, smuggling and substandard products that aren't regulated um, for quality in the same way as, as tobacco that's on sale in the UK at the moment is. Mm. Is there anything in that? It's a really interesting argument, and if you talk to people who you know don't work in this field, they're easily persuaded by the argument that if you introduce a plain pack, it, it'll be easier to um, counterfeit, and therefore mm. smuggling will go up. I kind of, I can see where you know that that argument comes from, but it's not the case. We've got good evidence from colleagues in in Europe, in particular, uh, a, a colleague in Belgium has done a lot of work on this. That what people don't understand is that most of the smuggled tobacco in the UK isn't people in their cars bringing stuff back from Europe or even the white van man. It's actually organized crime who produce counterfeit illicit tobacco. And it's very, very easy for them to copy the branded packs that are currently on sale. Mm. Um, they can produce a, a, a very persuasive branded pack for about 3p, that's the cost of the packaging, and indeed won't make much difference to the price of the packaging of that counterfeit pack. So there really isn't any good evidence that it's going to have a, a significant impact on smuggling. And the other thing we know is that what reduces the availability of illicit tobacco in a market is actually the extent to which the government cracks down on that type of activity, deals with organized crime. So the other thing I would say is the tobacco industry will say, well, isn't it horrible that, you know, there might be more illicit tobacco in the UK market and we don't know what's in those cigarettes. And that kind of implies that, you know, illicit tobacco is a deadly product. Mm. But legal, legitimate tobacco is a deadly product <clears throat> that kills one in two of its regular users. So, you know, from my perspective, that argument really doesn't hold any water. What does the public think about plain packaging? Support for the policy has gone up. And uh, now we've got a majority of the adult population in the UK who are in favour of the introduction of plain packaging. And we've also got a significant proportion of smokers who think it's a good idea to move forward. And that's, I think, because the British the British public generally are quite supportive of tobacco control measures. They know tobacco kills. That's not everybody, but most people. So if it's got uh, good evidence that it's going to reduce smoking, it's got public backing, uh, do you worry that it's influence of the industry that is preventing the government from from bringing this legislation in? Well, I think there's been a very, very powerful campaign. One example is a campaign called Hands Off Our Packs that's been run. So there are very um, confident and vocal members of the British uh, public who are opposed to it. Um, and they've petitioned the government. They re responded to the public consultation um, and uh, put forward their views. So I think what we need to recognize is that they're, not everybody likes this idea. And those who don't, um, they tend to come from a community of people who 
um, you know, are, are more of a um, concern that government might be trying to restrict individual liberty, let's put it that way, or mm. individual freedoms. And it's very difficult for me as a public health researcher to say, well, of course, they're all funded by the tobacco industry because we've got no evidence of that. But we do know that some of the prominent organizations that are funded by the tobacco industry and have admitted, like, like Forrest, the smokers' rights group, and we've also seen some of their, the Institute of Economic Affairs, for example, that receives funding from the industry and others, and we know that they have been loudly protesting against plain packs. So you know, at the end of the day, this is one of those issues in public health where you have powerful vested corporate interests that produce a product that I've said kills. Um, and, and they are keen, obviously, to rally support for their cause. And that's what, you're, that's what we've seen being played out in recent months in the UK. Linda Bold, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you. Thanks, Duncan. And as I said, that article is now available on bmj.com. Now, Mabel Chu finds out how to talk to patients about suicide. I have with me in the studio Richard Morris, who's Professor of Psychiatry and Consultant Psychiatrist at Nottingham in the UK. Richard's here to talk to us about how we assess risk of suicide or self-harm in practice. Richard, thank you for joining us. Now, to start with, we know that um, suicide is one of the top three causes of mortality in young and middle-aged people throughout the, the world. Um, but clinicians like me in general practice or in, in the emergency department, for that matter, often feel uh, very much at sea when it comes to how to actually assess risk in for instance, in the very depressed middle-aged person who comes into the surgery, or perhaps the teenager who's been brought in by their parents who, who has a long history of self-harm. I wonder if we might start at the beginning, perhaps, and talk about who we should be assessing. I think the first thing is that people need to have a, a reasonable index of suspicion. Suicide can happen in people who, on the face of it, don't appear to have any risk factors. So there has to be an index of suspicion in the first place. Any indication of current or past mental health problems would be one indicator. Anyone who seems depressed and upset, even if it's an understandable reason, um, people still kill themselves even if the reasons are all too understandable. Um, And any um, impulsive or unpredictable behaviour. After depression, they the uh, next biggest group of people are people who act impulsively without much thought. One could also add people with significant um, alcohol and drug problems as well. Okay, and how does one broach the topic? That's often a, a very difficult initial step. It is. Um, I mean, I think that the important thing is that uh, the approach to take it is, is conversational, start with the underlying problems that people have. I think it's not a good idea to just go straight into do you feel suicidal or anything like that. If you do, the the person hearing that will not necessarily tell you we've taken aback Um, and also the person trying to do that will feel very uncomfortable doing it. It's better to to engage them into a bit of a conversation, get a sense of the underlying problems and then pursue this if it appears that, that, that you could be in one of the high-risk groups. Would a reasonable way of putting it, uh, broaching the topic to, for instance, the middle-aged man might be something along the lines of, it sounds as though things have been really very difficult for you in the last few months. 
um, have you ever thought of harming yourself? Would that be a reasonable way to broach the risk assessment? I think the first part of that sounds like it's been a difficult time for you. I think the, the next place I would go would be to how do you see the future? Trying to explore hopelessness. On the whole, suicide seems reasonably logical if you feel hopeless and helpless and things are never going to change and it's a catastrophic situation. Some people struggle with just being asked about suicide, so they are, it's better to lead up to it. And then from there, ask about whether they wish to be dead, whether they have any uh, thoughts and then plans about suicide. Another reason for asking it in that way is that um, some people, perhaps more likely of the teenage age group, but I mean it can happen at any age, uh, can give you a very lot of a lot of inconsistent messages. So on the one hand, they're saying, "Yes, I'm going to kill myself," but in the next week, I'm looking forward to doing this and going to that party and doing this. So by by working out, by working through hopelessness and their wishes to be dead suicidal ideas, suicidal plans, it gives them a chance to speak enough to see whether there's an internal consistency to what they're saying. Yes, that's very helpful. And what about the person who's been uh, self-harming and cutting themselves? How how would you take the conversation in, in exploring risk there? Well, if someone has actually self-harmed, um, it, it, it gives you a chance to, to get additional information because you... you the normal procedure there would be to tell me about the, you know, the 24 hours leading up to this. You know, what were you doing? How were you feeling? Um, because there is some consistency in, in terms of if, if the same situations arise again, then there's a, a, if they've self-harmed once, there's a risk of another type of self-harm. They don't always necessarily self-harm in the next time in a, in a safe way. So... This time they might have cut their wrists, but the next time could be a much more uh, serious problem. They might try to hang themselves. And and one of the things that I'm, I I worry about, and have seen at first hand, and there's some evidence of it in the literature, is that some staff can get complacent about people who repeatedly self-harm. Oh, they're always here. They're always doing that. Um, and they are the highest risk of all in terms of eventually killing themselves. And how do you know it's this time? Next time, they're not going to be, it's not going to be suicide. And getting an understanding of how they're, of what led up to their their behavior, it can also tell you um, something about, uh, you know, if anything's changed from, from, from normal. You know, was there a particular, is this a particularly difficult time for them? Um, and uh, so, so those, those are the, the approaches. I, I think in talking to someone who's already self-harmed, in one way, is easier than to talking to someone who hasn't self-harmed, because it is a fairly logical question to ask, and one I, I think they'll be expecting to hear. Okay, so you've given us a, a very helpful uh, rundown of risk factors that might be problematic. Are there any other red flags that we, we ought to be on the lookout for? Certainly uh, one association is with occupation and access to potentially lethal methods. Um, I think the other important thing is, and, and one of the things that other than broaching the subject altogether, that is also difficult about all of this, is, is, that, is to understand context 
um, that one person's bad news so, uh, can be another person's opportunity. So someone who has just been made unemployed and hated their job, you know, this actually is releasing. Another person whose whole identity uh, and being and all the influential viability and self-respect is, is wrapped up in their in their job, to lose their job is a catastrophe. Um, so that's the same event has happened in two different people. But you can't just go by that. You've also got to understand uh, their wider belief system, their support system. So the first person you know, may, may really look forward to the opportunity to branch out on their own, but actually in the past they've just not coped with any change well at all they don't have any kind of support system, they don't really have any clue about how to do it, and and actually become overwhelmed by all of this in a very short period of time. Whereas a person with a catastrophe may still have you know, really strong family support, um, uh, maybe a set of religious beliefs and spiritual beliefs which would be against suicide. So that person can, can sometimes, even though they, they perceive that they're the latest event in their life to be catastrophic and might still be at lower risk than someone who even sees a, a life event as, not, as a potential opportunity. So the context of it and understanding that that narrative, what, what one tries to do is that those suicide at first glance seems to be quite illogical. You're trying to think of it as a story. Is this a coherent story? People think in stories and they like to be internally consistent with their story. So as a story or narrative, does one step follow on from another, and, and does it make sense? Um, and uh, if there is a, a step change or something missing in that story, or you can't quite see how it all fits together, I think that's the time you really need help. Uh, we need to think of the story, think of the person's context and how they're interpreting events around them and how they're feeling. We need to assess their thoughts, their plans and their intent, explore what keeps them going as, as well as what might be making them feel hopeless, um, explore triggers to self-harming behaviours in the past. Um, we need to assess what their access to lethal means of harm is like, and also to look for patterns of behaviours and, and, and possibly an escalation in self-harm behaviours as part of our assessment. Now, having gathered some of this information, what do we do with it? Because I think that's the other thing that bedevils clinicians. What are the options available? Okay, well, I think one uh, needs to divide this into what the person needs to do themselves. And, and then secondly, the kind of help they need to receive. If, if they're very emotional and upset and distressed, trying to let them to, to express that in a way that you just support anybody that you know, just let them express it up to a point. If they tell you something, summarize it for them. Because you need to get a little bit of control of the situation before you then start ringing people up. So the the next thing to do would be to contact the, the services. That will vary from place to place exactly what the system is. But uh, most countries, most places will have some sort of crisis intervention from the mental health services. So this, in some places, might be a junior 
doctor, it might be a nurse, it might be a whole service. If it was England, it's likely to, to be a um, crisis intervention team. Importantly, you need to communicate to them your assessment and the risk and, um, and what you think, how quickly they think they need to be seen. Um, that's the main responsibility for, for the uh, non-specialist. Hopefully you'll get a suitable response. If I were to come to the conclusion that the patient sitting in front of me is at high risk, but I'm not entirely sure that person is perhaps at the, at the stage of admitting anything, how do, you, how do you convey your concern without necessarily... I mean, I think the fear for many cl- clinicians is that we might tip them over the edge, perhaps. Essentially, if, if, the person, if the clinician seems interested in them and their welfare, and most clinicians would come across that way, then the person will respond in, in, in kind. And, and that's the best way to be, and I think it's the most comfortable position for the clinician to, to be in. I, I, I think the, the, the other thing is that one does have to recognise that there are some people who will need some sort of compulsory approach to them. And then it can be tempting to be underhand and just not tell anyone what you're doing. But I'm afraid that tends to just cause more difficulties. There's often a more satisfactory accommodation which will be more effective in terms of promoting safety and getting the help the person requires if one's open about this. If, you, if they don't think you're open and trustworthy, then they may conclude the best thing to do is just disappear and not cooperate at all. Which is counterproductive. Which is counterproductive. Absolutely. Richard, thank you very much for that outline of what we can do. Ultimately, it sounds as though the most important thing clinicians can do is just to be real with the patient and to, to, to provide a, an open environment where they do feel they can talk about their hopelessness and fears but also to convey your own concerns for them so that they don't feel that you're following an algorithm or or ticking off some boxes. And then the final observation is that if this is done at the right time and the right place, then it can be life-saving. And a lot of uh, suicides appear in retrospect to have been not well considered or well thought out. And in those instances, people's perceptions in a relatively short period of time would have changed and they would have been relieved that they wouldn't they didn't actually kill themselves. So in that sense it's life saving to do this at the right time. And that's a great note to end on. Thank you so much, Richard, for your time. And again that article is available now online on bmj.com. That's all for this week. Join us next week with more from the world of medicine. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.